Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is Craig Greenfield, who is the founder of Alongsiders International, which is a grassroots youth discipleship movement that has now spread to more than 30 countries. He is the author of Subversive Jesus, and his latest book is titled Subversive Mission, Serving as Outsiders in a World of Need, which grows out of his more than 20 years of experience of ministering uh, alongside, not to, but alongside fellow believers in Cambodia. And uh, we, we had a wonderful conversation about um, kind of cross-cultural ministry, even a concept of missions and missionary, whether those concepts are helpful. We talk about orphanages versus orphan uh, caring, other alternative ways of caring for orphans. I, I do want to say that uh, I recorded this podcast kind of early in the morning and I got in super late the night before. <laughs> So I was running on very little sleep, and I'm not much of a morning person. So even even throughout the conversation, I think I had a couple brain farts. So um, I don't know. Maybe that'll explain some of the uh, glitches in my uh, my my brain that just wasn't firing the way I it normally does. Which even then, it's not um, too much to write home about. So anyway, uh, love the conversation. You know, you'll really enjoy getting to know the one and only Craig Greenfield. Craig Greenfield, a uh, person I just met, friend of a friend. Uh, so thanks for responding to some random email, Craig, and coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks, Preston. It's good to be with you today. So I, when uh, when our mutual friend put us in touch, I immediately went on your website, and then the first blog, <laughs> the first blog post I saw was, you know, should we? Let me just read it here. What is it? Uh, is it time to ditch the word missionary? I was like, oh, I like, I like this, you know, and I read it and it was so spot on, but I was like, I would imagine not everybody's going to like this article, even though I think that um, logically it just makes so much sense. But anyway, that, that might be, we could probably put that off for a second. I want to get to know you and um, you've been on the mission field. Yeah, I know. So mission field, let me just say, there's no wrong words here. (laughs) (laughs) You've been serving Jesus, not in your country of birth. Um, Mm -hmm. Let's start there. What, what got you into wanting to serve Jesus uh, in an, in another country? Yeah. Well, back in, back in the late nineties, I, I took some time off uni and um, went and spent some time in Cambodia, which I'm actually here now in Cambodia. It's late at night. That's why it's a bit but dark and murky, but really fell in love with the place. And so it took me a few years to get back to Cambodia, but beginning of the year 2000, my wife and I moved into an urban slum in Phnom Penh, um, the capital city of Cambodia, and lived there for many, many years amongst the poor. We were evicted from two different slums along with our neighbors and um, really just began this long process of trying to discover what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are the poor. Um, I've come to bring good news to the poor. What does this mean? Coming from a you know white affluent background of privilege, um, I had not grown up with a theology that um, really went into any depth around those around those kind of ideas and how central God's heart for the poor is. And um, so it's been a long journey, 23 years, mostly in Cambodia, but also in inner city Vancouver, Canada, for seven years. Um, where we started a, an intentional Christian community welcoming in folks from the streets. And yeah, all kinds of good things along the way, as long as a lot of a lot of pain and suffering <laughs> as well. So going straight, I mean, 
I, I would imagine moving to Cambodia that that's a that's a you know a big shift and change and but going straight to the inner city, the slums. I mean, was that that was was that was that intentional? Like, do you see something? I mean, it wasn't just yeah. I want to go to Cambodia. Like, I want to go to the poorest part of this country. Or yeah, and and I think once you scratch the surface, you'll find there's not many missionaries who who are right. that crazy to do those kind of things. <laughs> Um, but I guess, you know, we were coming from kind of a theology looking at how, you know, Jesus left the most exclusive gated community in the universe to live amongst us and um, said, follow me. And so we really wanted to follow Jesus into the slums and amongst the poor and kind of figure out what that would look like. And so, yeah, that was the direction we went. We worked, We went with an organization called Servants to Asia's Urban Poor, which is kind of one of the only groups out there that does that kind of thing. And they helped us form a theology and an understanding and a practice around that. What was the, I mean, um, like the greatest challenge? What were some of the top challenges uh, in that just pretty radical adjustment of, of both living and also ministering? I would imagine you're an outsider, right? And I know you talk a lot, a lot about that in your work. Um, was that helpful for ministry? Did it hinder your ministry? What what challenges did that bring to the ministry you were, you were doing? Yeah, I, I mean, there's the obvious kind of challenges of just adjusting culturally, um, learning the language. We had a we had a power pylon through the middle of our bathroom, and um, people would be you'd hear people clambering on our tin roof at night, and they would be hooking up illegal connections to this power pylon. That's coming right through the middle of our bathroom. It just, you know, just complete change of going from New Zealand where I grew up to being in, a, in an urban slum. Um, but then it's the other things around, you know, corruption and just noise and crowded space and that kind of thing that that's really tough. But but over the years, you know, that's that's kind of been my challenge, my theological and practical challenge is what is the role of an outsider in these kind of settings? And as, you know, as the years have unfolded, society has changed in the way we, we think about those things. Nobody wants to be a white savior or a savior of any color. Um, thinking has changed. Everybody's read When Helping Hurts. Um, and so, you know, um, we need new wineskins. Frankly, we need new wineskins. I would say that we are at a time of deep paralysis about the role, about our role in the world as Christians. And um, for many, that paralysis will lead to inaction or even apathy. Um, but I don't believe that's that's the invitation of Jesus. I think he calls us not only to love our neighbors across the street, but our neighbors across the oceans as well. So we need to, we urgently need to reframe and rethink what our role is in the world. Can, can you expand on that? What what was, I, I, well, you said you, you know, you read When Helping Hurts, I believe you. That came out after you went to, yeah. you probably were there several years. So did you, Yeah. and I feel like in the last 20 years, there has been, it seems, I mean, you're, you're the expert, but from my outsider to the outsider vantage point, like, it seems like there has been a pretty radical shift in think among Westerners. How, how do we think about doing overseas missions? Is that even the right framework? So, so can you talk to us about your, I'm just going to assume you've had some progression and how you've thought through your role in the ministry? Oh, oh, for sure. I mean, you know, there's the, there's the kind of classic story of, you know, how attractive it is to start an orphanage, for example. And we, we arrived smack bang in the middle of the HIV AIDS crisis. So our neighbors were literally 
you know, we nursed many of our neighbours to their death through HIV and AIDS and then saw their children being orphaned. So the kind of knee-jerk response, the unresearched response is to create an orphanage. As a, you know, once you start doing the research and looking into it, obviously, um, there's major reasons why that is not a good idea. And so we actually created one of the first community-based care um, programs for children being orphaned by AIDS in Cambodia. And I wrote a book in 2007 um, trying to really bring that message to the, the wider Christian community because amongst academics, amongst practitioners, development people on the ground, that's widely known, but still um, amongst Christians, it's it's getting out there. And back in 2007, that was very new. That was a new message. Can you, I've, so I've had a couple different people on the podcast talking about why orphanages are not the best way to care for orphans and, and a lot yeah. of the problems there. But the, 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 these podcasts are, <laughs> I think one was like six months ago. The other was like over a year ago. So um, I'm, I'm not going to, I don't assume that all the listeners are familiar with those two episodes. Can you give sure. us a, a, maybe a, yeah, a, a tight summary of, of the shift in thinking regarding orphan care that, that has no, happened? I can't. I mean, the reality is that these children have lost their parents. Um, why should, why would we then take them away from everyone else that they know and love? Why would we use our resources to take them from the community rather than using our resources to keep them in the community where they can grow up in a normal kind of setting in a, in a community of extended family. You know, I did my post-grad research comparing the lives of children in orphanages to the li- who had been orphaned to the lives of children who'd been orphaned and were in the community. Oh wow! And, you know, kind of stark difference that, that lines up with decades of other research as well. What what, what are some uh, of the big differences that you saw in your research? Well, I mean, the first kind of finding is you realize, oh, all these children in orphanages, most of them are not double orphans, you know. Many of them have lost one parent, um, but they're actually there for reasons of poverty. The reason they are in orphanages is because their family is too poor to look after them. And so then we use our money, which costs way more anyway, Uh, You know, just economically speaking, it costs way more to take them out of the community, build an orphanage, hire staff, than to simply empower and strengthen those families economically to care for their own orphans and have the dignity to care for their own orphans. So, you know, just on a number of fronts, you know, there's there's list after list of reasons why this is not a good idea. I mean, it's interesting you said that in the academic, the the people who've done research in this, it's not really disputed anymore. It's like that has all shifted, but in the, in the, on the ground though, the opposite is true. It seems like, I mean, I, 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 I people were supporting or- orphanages all the time. Like that's just uh, what we do as Christians. And, and it's you know? Christians. I, I'm sad to say um, Christians are on the forefront of the burgeoning orphanage movement. Yeah. Um, but there are also amazing Christians who are powerfully modeling other ways um, there, I, I've seen, I've personally seen a major shift, and and you know, being part of um, networks like World Without Orphans, who have been on the forefront of kind of helping people to change their mind around that and take the steps to move towards community-based care. World Without Orphans, okay. So I mean, I know you know, obviously, one million home, and shoot, I'm yeah. looking at a couple. There's a couple other orgs I've come across. So yeah, well, World Without Orphans is a network that brings together all of those individual NGOs like One Million Homes that 
And um, and there's a lot that are doing community-based care. There's thousands around the world. So okay. we need to work together. When you talk about this shift in paradigm to churches that maybe are supporting an orphanage, like do you do you face resistance or do you are people when you explain it and just say this is what the data shows? Are people like, oh my gosh, all right, we need to revamp, or do you still have churches that kind of hunker down and oh, that you know, we're going to look at depends how invested they are in it. You know, if you if you're talking to an an orphanage director or founder, then you're going to get a lot more pushback. Okay. But those who kind of have never thought about it, right. um, you know, you lay out a dozen reasons and they quickly see, oh wow, okay, you're right. Yeah. Uh, it's better for children to be in families than in an institution. I mean, I have two kids. And it took every last ounce of my wife and I's energy to raise those two kids. <laughs> I can't even imagine having 10 kids or 30 kids. And I'm only, you know, a staff who also has my own family to, to take care of. And it's just not feasible that we can care for kids in, in a kind of a staffed model. We, you know, we need to have families and uh, you know, if there's no biological family, which is kind of like the first knee-jerk response, well, there's nobody. Um, usually when we scratch the surface, usually when we're in relationship with people in the communities, we find actually there is. Um, but even if there weren't, then foster families are a viable model for um, taking care of children in the community. So they can stay within a normal, organic, real kind of community structure. What about uh, uh, like street kids? I don't know. I know they're called probably referred to with different terms. And I know if there's a good or bad term, but like, so a, bu- a buddy of mine went to, I think it was a uh, Congo and he was like, man, you know, in the real poor, I think um, a poor part of a poor town, you know? And he's like, Hey, you got these little kids just literally living on the streets, you know? And he's like, I just want to grab them and, you know, take care of them. I'm like, I oh, don't, don't do that. You know? But, um, well, well, you know, we need to we need to unpack the reasons of why they're on the streets. Um, often it is poverty. Again, it just often comes back to poverty. Um, other times, if it's abuse, then yeah, an alternative family needs to be found and um, and supported. But we start with the kind of central principle that God places the lonely in families. Um, that God places children in families. That the family is the structure to take care of children, not an institution. And so, yeah, there might be a time of transition um, to a halfway house for, you know, a couple of months while the family's getting set up. But long term um, in an institution is is not healthy for children. Well, let's go back to um, your role as an outsider. What have you learned um, mm. to be the most effective uh, role for you to play as an outsider coming alongside people who are, you know, actually from and living in the country, you know, that you're ministering. Yeah. Um, well, in my book, um, Subversive Mission, I really I've laid out a framework um, because I think that the critiques are out there. You know, there's been a lot of great critique and, and we've just done a critique of orphanages, right? Right, there's, right? there's plenty of critique. When Helping Hurts, good kind of critique 101 of how not to do it. Um, but as I kind of said earlier, I think we're now at the point where we, we've critiqued so much, we're at paralysis. And so we really need a framework, a hopeful framework and paradigm for moving forward. And um, this is something that I've kind of implemented and learned over, you know, 23 years of working cross-culturally. The discipleship movement that we started here in Cambodia has spread to 30 countries, over 20,000 involved in that discipleship movement. And so this is 
stuff that is bearing fruit. I'm not an I'm not an academic. I'm not speaking from the ivory tower. I'm speaking to you right now from an urban poor community. And so um, these are things that that others are also saying. But what I've tried to do is put them together in a way that we can kind of just get our heads around and say, okay, yeah, I'm not going to be the superhero. I'm going to be the sidekick. There is a difference between the role of an outsider and the role of an insider. And very often we haven't articulated that clearly enough. We've kind of said, I'm a pastor in San Diego. That's my gifting. And so when I go to Bangalore, I'm going to also be a pastor. Or I'm prophetic. Uh, I'm a prophetically gifted. I lead the, you know, the protest march or speak out for justice in Chicago. And now when I go to Cambodia, I'm going to do the same thing. Um, and so what I want to suggest is that we take that Ephesians 4 framework of the fivefold ministries, the fivefold ministry types, and we just kind of slightly reframe it for the cross-cultural context and what I call the, the fivefold missional types. And they're not fundamentally uh, different. They're, they're still rooted in our giftedness, but they ask us to take a different posture because when we are outsiders and we hold more power, we hold more resources, uh, we're, gonna, we're going to really distort the situation in ways that are unhelpful. Mm. And so I've taken in my book five, those fivefold types, the pastor, the apostle, the evangelist, the teacher, etc., cetera, um, and reframed them with a different posture. So let, let me give you an example. One of the one of the one of my giftings is really in the in the area of the prophetic. I'm passionate about justice. I think this is a generation that is passionate about justice, and it's one of the reasons why we're critiquing missions so hard because it has, you know, for so long been yoked with colonialism. But when I come from my own context, uh, whether it's Canada where I was born or New Zealand where I grew up, yeah, I was trying to lead the way. I was part, I was right there in the thick of it, right? And using my prophetic gifts as, as well as I could to speak out for justice. Um, but when I come to Cambodia, and as I mentioned, I've been evicted twice from two different slums along with all my Cambodian neighbors. And that affects me, but it doesn't affect me in the same way it affects them. And when I speak out, the consequences for me are going to be very different for when they speak out. Yeah. So one of the young women that um, was evicted around the same time as us, young woman named Deb Bunny. Um, she and four of her friends was just so desperate and so devastated that they dragged their bamboo beds into the middle of the busiest intersection in Cambodia. And um, they're just like, we have no place to lay our head, uh, you know, so put up with us here, interrupting all of you, uh, which is a classic, actually, you know, process actions interruption. And you can just imagine, though, in the Cambodian context, all these, you know, big cars screeching to a halt, the dust flying, the horns, the shouting, and then the sounds of the soldiers' boots just running towards, towards them. And there are all these soldiers, quite classic Cambodian authoritarian regime. They're all wearing black helmets, motorcycle helmets with tinted, like just to look more menacing, like, you know, stormtroopers or something. <laughs> and they just bundle up these four young women into the van and take them off and throw them in prison. So my role as an outsider is to come as an ally, not as a prophet. 
And so I reframed that I that that type. Yeah, I was a maybe prop prophetic or prophet in the West, but when I come to a place like Cambodia, I come as an ally seeking to amplify the voices of local prophets, seeking to amplify their stories, coming onto a podcast and telling the story of Deb Vani. Um, that's something I can do as an ally and tell her story. And I would suggest that, you know, just coming back to this whole area of paralysis, mm. um, actually there is a role for us in the world to use our networks, to use our connections, to use our English language to get the word out around those types of things. So that's what I want to do for each of those types is reframe from profit to ally and go through one by one. And it's a fun exercise. It's a challenging exercise. I bet. I bet. Is it hard? I would imagine. Well, let, let me, I'll just maybe not imagine, just ask. I mean, when, when you go in, you move to Cambodia, you're in the slums and um, do people look to you like, do they want you to kind of lead and be the guy and we'll follow you or like when you yeah. come as an ally and say, no, no, I want to, I want to help empower you not be the front front person, you know, is that received well or is, or is, do, are there pushback from locals? With well, that you know, there is because at the moment they are kind of under the boot of malevolent forces. So, you know, corrupt local leaders, local authorities, and so they would rather um, exchange those for, what's the word, beneficial kind of patrons. They'd rather take those who, who are really treating them bad and, you know, exchange them for someone like me who's going to give them money and resources. But that's not God's greatest plan for them. It's not for them to look to me as a savior, but for them to find Jesus as their savior and their support and their comfort. And um, wherever we have just... Kind of all we've done is exchange their the tyrants who are malevolent for tyrants who are hopefully <laughs> supposed to be you know kind. Um, but in actual fact, we're placing ourselves at the center of the story rather than those who need to be at the center. And um, so let, let me give you another example. During COVID, um, you know, there's a lot of talk in the West about the tyranny of governments during COVID, um, but be very interesting to compare that to what it was like here in Cambodia, where we had literally an hour notice of lockdown. Um, the soldiers rolled out barricades on the end of all our streets. There was razor wire on the top of these. They were patrolling with, you know, large weapons. Um, and we were not allowed to go off our blocks, off our little kind of village patches. And so, you know, I, I had enough food to feed my family. I had a fridge. Um, but our neighbors came home. My wife was sitting in their little shack, eight of them living in that little shack. And they came home with two cans of fish and a tiny bottle of oil. This is what they could gather in an hour because they didn't have enough money. What they earned that day was what they would feed themselves with that night. So as you can imagine, like we're all barricaded in and about two weeks in, people are starting to get desperate. I mean, there was no way for the poor to earn the way that they could earn before. Um, and so people are hungry. We jump on a Zoom call with some of our alongsiders leaders. Alongsiders is the name of the discipleship movement that, that we started. And um, we're, we're not, like throwing around ideas. And we're in this situation where a lot of Christians don't find themselves in. You know, like normally you're like, people are poor and hungry. Um, let's, let's write an email to our supporters, get a lot of money, buy, buy some rice, buy some relief supplies and distribute it. But we're all behind razor wire. There's nothing, nobody can move. 
And so we're kind of forced to become more creative. And, and we wouldn't have done that anyway just because of our ethos. But one of the young Cambodian women on the call says, why don't we do what I saw some folks doing in the Philippines? We could put a table out the front of our homes and, and put this, this word, if you, if you have extra, put it on the table, and if you're in need, um, take it from the table. And but it sounded way more pithy in Cambodian. We made it a hashtag. And she said, and then we could tag our friends on Facebook, tag three friends each and, and challenge them to do it as well. And so that that's exactly what we did. And um, what was so beautiful was just to see that movement go viral all around Cambodia. Oh, wow. You know, you could have had the benevolent helpers come and distribute relief supplies. And it wouldn't have been that same sense of the spirit of God stirring up with hundreds of people all over Cambodia um, hashtagging and tagging their friends and challenging them to just share with your neighbors, just share. And having the dignity of being part of the solution instead of just being the recipients of the solution. And so, yeah, I can't even remember the question, but that's, that's just kind of the, the whole ethos of what we're trying to promote. That's straight. I feel like that's straight out of when helping hurts, right? I mean, we're so used to just relying on the white savior and not, and not, you know, um, that's a very pejorative term and yeah. You know, savior I, I, of any color. Right, 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 right. Um, and, and I think the motivation is like, gosh, just people need us when I help, I can just tap into my bank account and give them, I could, we could fix this right now. But like you said, that steals away the, the dignity mm-hmm. of actually the person in need, um, realizing that they, there is, they can tap into communal power that, it's not only more sustainable, but is more dignifying, especially in the long run. Um, but that wouldn't have happened. That's interesting. So you were squozing so tightly that you couldn't just say, all right, I'll make the call and get some, you know, rice, you know. Yeah. Wow. You know, you know, I think I think kind of recognizing that we need local solutions is kind of like cross-cultural service 101. Figuring out our role in that is 201. You know, we've got to go with okay, we've got when helping hurts. Now we need. We need the next step. We need yeah. a framework. And that's really what I'm trying to help with this subversive mission. I, I would imagine you made some mistakes along the way and 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 um those are all part of the learning process. Do you uh do you have any off the top of your head that you're like, man, this you know, this yeah, thing no. that I did or whatever, this <laughs> I now know I would not do that again or um Yeah, I, I think one of the things like I said before, um one of my primary passions is is the prophetic, just speaking out for justice. And I just hate anything that looks like bullying to me or just people who have power, people who have guns, lording it over the poor and the, you know, the oppressed. And so, and, and, you know, I spent a lot of time in my early years learning Cambodian as fluently as I can. I speak, I speak well. Um, but the problem is, <laughs> When you speak well and you see injustice in Cambodia, um, you and you open your massive mouth and just start, you know, berating a local official who's taking a bribe or something. Um, you know, I've had death threats. I've had um, times when I just spoke out in ways that culturally were were not acceptable and not effective. Because, you know, us Westerners, we're so direct. Uh, we just tell someone off. We see someone doing something wrong and we're just going for it. And I've had to learn um, to zip my mouth up and consult with local leaders and work together with them um, in ways that will 
will advance the cause of justice rather than make it worse. Um, I'll share a little story with you. I, we actually, for quite a while, were meeting on a monthly basis until COVID came along um, with a group of Cambodian Christian leaders who are passionate about issues of justice. And um, we decided to go for a retreat and we were like, having all these great discussions during the day, we wanted to watch a movie at night. So I was like, no, you know, we could watch this documentary, but that's a bit too controversial. Like you can't do political stuff in Cambodia, right? So just that that's the background. You can't talk about politics at all. So I was like, well, why don't we watch um, Animal Farm? One of our team has just added Cambodian subtitles to the movie Animal Farm. And that's kind of got some cool themes and it's kind of metaphorical. So we're watching Animal Farm projected up. And we're sitting up on a balcony outside, projecting it on the wall. <laughs> and um, Animal Farm's going, and like, like two minutes into I'm like, this is really revolutionary, man. Like the sheep have pitchforks and they're like, overthrow Farmer Jones. You know, it's very, very like politically <laughs> revolutionary, like a no-no for Cambodia. <laughs> and um we're sitting there up in the balcony and then one of the Cambodian leaders comes, taps me on the show and says, there's three police here and uh, they want to know what we're doing. <laughs> and they're like down below. And I start to get up to go and, you know, I'm not afraid of the police. I'm like, I'll go and tell them what's what. And and she just says, no, no, Craig, you, you just sit down and zip it. And she goes down, this young, like early 20s, young woman, but leader, and she just talks to them and they're like, what are you doing? She says, we're just watching a children's movie. And you see, you can see it up there. And miraculously, they are on such an angle that they can see the movie, but they can't see the subtitles. So they have no idea what's going on. <laughs> and almost in a childlike way, they just stand there and watch the rest of the movie from the bottom <laughs> of the balcony. While we're all up on the balcony going, oh, my goodness, we're about to get thrown in prison any moment now. <laughs> no, it's, it's just good times, you know. There's, um, there's some strange things that happen out here in the, in the rest of the world. This episode is sponsored by Biola University. Biola is consistently ranked as one of the nation's leading Christian universities. Biola has over 300 academic programs at both the undergraduate and graduate levels, which are available both in Southern California and online. With leading academic programs like business, film, science, and more, Biola's biblically integrated curriculum helps students grow closer to God and gain a deeper understanding of Scripture. In fact, I was just uh, at the Biola campus a few weeks ago. I, I toured the campus and talked with several deans and professors, and every single one I talked to was so passionate about making Christ first in all things. I mean, Biola's quality of academics is well documented. There's no doubt about that. But I was most impressed with how utterly Christ-centered the school is. So, at Biola, students become equipped for a thriving life and career. They'll learn how to articulate their Christian beliefs. And most of all, they'll be prepared to serve as God's instrument in their community and around the world. Now, through June 1st, um, 2023, you can use the promo code PRESTON to waive the application fee for any Biola program. Okay, the deadline used to be May 1st. They actually extended it for our audience to June 1st. So get your application in before June 1st. Uh, put in the code PRESTON and get your application fee waived. Uh, some restrictions may apply. Just visit www.biola.edu for more information. So when you moved into the, the slum, like, what did people think of that? Were they like, what are you, this 
person with privilege, just Westerner moving in. And, and, and did you come in as a supported missionary, or did you get a job, or what? What was? Yeah, we. Um, I mean, we. We. That's one of the things we have to recognize is we're outsiders. We have access to resources. Um, or no matter how much I incarnate amongst the poor, I'll always have a passport to go home. I'll always have you know access to healthcare. And I don't think that's a reason not to try to be in relationship with the poor as much as we can. It's not a reason to feel guilty or beat ourselves up about it. It's just, let's be clear. I'm an outsider. These people are insiders. Um, but maybe I can model something of that kind of um, those of us who are higher in the hierarchy, which as an outsider, I just naturally was considered that way. Maybe I can model um, the radical hospitality of Jesus of welcoming, welcoming my little neighbor with Down syndrome who is, you know, poorly treated or welcoming the widow or welcoming, you know, there was one time, um, there was a young woman who'd been working in prostitution. She was eight months pregnant and she was sleeping under a tree outside our house. And, um, all the neighbors were like, Oh, just stay away from that woman. She's trouble. And, you know, my wife and I just took her in and helped her to, find somewhere else to stay eventually. But we can just model those those ways of Jesus um, that and learn from our neighbors as well. And many of them teach us more about the ways of Jesus than we teach them at times too. I, w- I would imagine that, I mean, the Christian community had a category for what you're doing, but non-Christians, when, I mean, do they, are they like, do they look at you odd? Like, what are you doing here? And, and you know, yeah. I think it's actually one of the most powerful um things that we can possibly do. Jackie Pullinger says, if you want to witness to the rich, minister to the poor. And, um, you know, I don't have any particular calling towards those who are affluent. Uh, It's not my, not my thing. And yet people who are affluent would often beat a pathway to our door to see what is this extremely kind of countercultural way of doing life. Um, Certainly in Vancouver, uh, one of the most affluent cities in the world, but also one of the, or has the poorest postal code. Um, and so, you know, I think it is, there's many ways in which it's attractive as well. When people want to know, why are you doing this crazy thing? Why are you welcoming all these people in and having a party? It looks awesome. Can I join? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. What, what's the, what is the state of Christianity in Cambodia? Like About 1.8% Christian, okay. really, really small. Yeah. What's the religious demographic? It, so it's like 90, 98% Buddhist. Okay. Yeah. There's okay. a small Muslim community. So, you know, I think that's that's the kind of context where there's a strong argument to be made. Well, we we need to come in and be planting churches. We need to come in as foreigners and do evangelism. And in my book, you know, both the kind of the pastor and the evangelist, what I want to suggest is those roles, even in that context where there is, you know, 1.7% sounds tiny, and yet there's tens of thousands of Christians here in right. Cambodia, gifted people. And so what I want to suggest is that those of us who are gifted as pastors, um, you know, you might leave um, Texas as a pastor. While you're on the plane to Cambodia, you take off the hat of a pastor and put on the hat of a midwife and help local Christians give birth to local expressions of the church. Um, and that's so crucial because, first of all, we just don't have a clue. We're coming from a, might as well be a different planet. <laughs> you know, I've been here a long, long time, and I'm still discovering culturally how different we think and do things. And we need to simply create 
churches that can be replicated by local people. So something as simply as, you know, a lot of missionaries come in and teach English. Now, I'm not knocking that. But, but first of all, how can that be replicated as a method of evangelism by local people? Um, you know, do, can we only have people who speak English fluently as evangelists? You know, we need to use ways that are going to be able to be replicated. And so it's best to come alongside local people and allow them to find those ways. Help them, ask them the questions as they help, as they think through those ways. And that way we'll have expressions of faith that are going to make sense and are going to spread beyond 1.7%, which yeah. is pretty pretty sad after, you know, decade, 100 years of the gospel being here in Cambodia. And what, what's the what's the political climate like? I mean, you, you've referenced a couple of times, like the cops coming to the door and get thrown into prison and stuff. Like, is it is it pretty volatile? And also, is it is Christianity looked upon uh, with disdain from the populace, or is it just kind of like I would imagine a Buddhist culture would be rather peaceful, but sometimes that's not always. Yeah, they kind of have a um, they kind of have the philosophy that all all religions are good. Yeah. Uh, yeah but but underneath that their religious and spiritual worldview is, is very, very far removed from the Christian worldview. And so, so it doesn't, even though they're open, it doesn't take, it doesn't take roots. And uh, I'll, I'll give you another example of that here in Cambodia, the first, some of the first missionaries, when they saw that Cambodians worship their ancestors using incense, um, you know, they immediately kind of said, no, you can't do that when you follow Jesus, which is very sad because they took away like one of the most, biblical ways of worshiping God. Um, and not only that, but one of the most central ways of worshiping in Cambodian culture. Um, and in contrast, in Mongolia, the missionaries saw that local people, yak milk is very sacred. And so when they have yak milk, they would toss a glass into the air for the gods. And in a more savvy way, the missionaries said, why, why don't you, when you toss you to the one true God, Jesus, and so the local Christians simply adapted their own kind of ways of worship um, into ways that would center Jesus. And as a result, those kind of forms of worship can really spread, whereas in Cambodia, it's like a barrier. It's an obstacle to the gospel. Interesting. Oh, wow. Oh, talk to me about alongsiders. I mean, you were just saying offline that like this movement is spread without you kind of pushing it or there's people involved that don't even know who you are, which I think is awesome. Um, what what birthed that and and describe what yeah what 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 it's all about? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, we were kind of working with children being orphaned in the early two thousands, and yeah, we were we were helping communities to care for their own orphans and they were staying in the communities. But we still kind of saw that this, the the social, emotional, and spiritual needs of those children were uh, not not necessarily being well met. And so um, we started to kind of look around and see, wow, the church is full of young people. Like the church in the non-Western world is very young, very, very young. And by that, I mean like age-wise. And so uh, we just saw this, this massive group of young Christians who are untapped. What, what if each of those young Christians was equipped to take on one child each as their little brother or sister and just walk alongside them to encourage, disciple, um, over you know over the course of several years, like a really deep transformational relationship, and so we started this in in Cambodia in, in you know twenty years ago, and it just kind of steadily grew. And then about ten years ago, 
I really sense God kind of saying, this is for beyond Cambodia. Different groups around the world, different kind of youth movements, denominations began to kind of ask us, what, what would it look like if our youth were equipped, if our Christian youth and young adults were equipped to make disciples? And, you know, they recognize that if, young, if people are not making disciples when they're young, they're not going to suddenly start when they're 40, 50, 60. Like, as a Cambodian proverb says, bend a tree while it's young. Um, and so we just began to help them equip in their own heart languages and only through local leaders. So as few outsiders involved as possible, there's probably like, like three of us um, who, are, who are actually outsiders. But everyone else is just local leaders who are pioneering these discipleship movements. Um, and what's interesting enough, just during COVID, we just it just started to explode. So 2021, we, we were at like 5,000 in like 16 countries. 2022, which is a year ago, we were at 10,000 in 21 countries. And then by the end of 2022, like just beginning of this year, uh, we hit 30 countries, more than 22,000 um, as a part of this multi-year deep discipleship in their own heart language Youth wow. discipleship. Movement. And what's your role? Do you do you uh, supply resources to people involved, or what does it take to to be yeah, part so of this all, group? Yeah. It's all volunteer. It's all all the local people are volunteers. Uh, no one's paid. Um, but what we do is we create comic books, um, and so every month these young people get a comic a comic book in their own heart language, and you know, drawn by local artists. And that they read with their little brother and sister. And that, that's not the sum total because it's much more than that. It's a whole relationship. But that gives them a little bit of a structure over three years that they are able, and we're able to take them through a fairly holistic kind of curriculum. So they're learning about, um, you know, God's love for them, um, but also creation, care, and how to study, um, integrity, uh, all these kind of biblical things, but the broader it's a much broader discipleship than kind of what you might get in some yeah. churches. That's fascinating. I mean, it sounds like that wasn't like you planned this out. This just kind of grew out of the natural rhythm of just growing organically yeah. through word of mouth. And like I said to you earlier, like mo most of those 22,000 have no idea who the heck Craig Greenfield is. Um, and I haven't even been to all the countries. So it's not me kind of going from to each country and, yeah, it's more, much more organically spreading through word of mouth. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and the other thing is in places where, how would I go anyway? Or how would an outsider go like Pakistan, um, Indonesia, Senegal, countries that are 98, 99% of a, of, of a different group of people where there's a lot of religious tension. You need stuff that's going to be very grassroots and under the radar. Um, and so this, that that's, I think, partly why it's just taking off in places where there's often a lot of persecution. So very much is indigenous-led now, right? I mean, that's yeah. You just, I mean, there's yeah. no there's yeah. no outs. The outsider aspect is is me and a couple of others behind the scenes working on some software stuff, um, encouraging some leaders, um, all of that kind of stuff. All right. So the term missionary. Um, all right. Do you call yourself a missionary if someone says, "Hey, Craig, what do you who what do you do?" Do you say I'm a missionary? I think that that term has has passed its use by date. <laughs> All right, so that's those are provocative words. Can you give some reasons why 
And also missionary and missions. Do you make a distinction between missions and missionary or is it all kind of, do you think problematic? Yeah, I think, I think it's all kind of tied up and, and let, let's just be honest. This is a generational thing. I don't, I don't go around to, you know, when I go to missions committee, which is all white haired older people, I don't say to them that, well, I don't always say to them, get rid of the word missionary. <laughs> but, but what's interesting to me, you know, I was actually, um, traveling around in a couple of Western countries last year, launching my book. And so one weekend I'd be speaking at the local mission conference. And then next weekend I was speaking at the justice conference. And uh, just because of, I'm in two worlds, right? And uh, very interesting how different those groups are that are at those two different conferences. Um, and yet we're all talking about the same kind of stuff. We're all talking about shalom. We want to see God's shalom, God's upside down kingdom come here on this earth. And we might use different language, but we're all passionate about the world and seeing transformation. And so I think that the word missionary is just a significant barrier for this generation. We're so passionate about justice that they're so hyper aware of the history of colonialism, et cetera. Um, that that word just holds too much baggage, and it's not like it's it's plucked from the Bible. Um, you know, it has some biblical roots, and of course, there is missionary activity in the Bible. I'm not saying get rid of missionary activity. I'm saying that word is just a label that is holding so many people back and is creating a paralysis in this generation. And so, let, let's move on. You know, the, the whole idea that there's one word that could capture what we do cross-culturally. I mean, let's at least have five, you know, take the five missional types. At least we can then recognize the different ways of being in the world and different ways of serving rather than this kind of one concept of missionary that we've got stuck in our brains. Yeah. What, uh, yes, that's interesting. I mean, when I hear missions even, it just, it does have like, just that, like when I say missions or someone's a missionary, I think, okay, so they probably flew over a body of salt water they're probably funded from like, they're not, they don't have a, a job where they're making money, you know, they're, they're, they're supported, you know, um, and they're going to help people that are kind of less fortunate or need, need help. Right. And I, I don't know, like, cause I, cause I, yeah, I mean, okay. Missions as the content of what we're talking, like, like, I think I, I believe so passionately in just the global church being the global church and serving one another and helping out others in need and our allegiance is to, brothers and sisters all around the globe, more than to my neighbor next door who happens to be an American, you know, with the same passport. Like, so that, that idea of this global upside down kingdom, I think is so central to, to the biblical storyline and, um, and missions is the term, the category that we have kind of used to be the kind of glue to hold that thing together a little bit, but then I don't know, it has. It's the, it's, a, it's the missions industrial complex, you know, and, and, <laughs> And, and, you know, I'll just take it even further and even more controversial, right? Like the, 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 there are times when certain verses are used that kind of define a generation and how we're thinking in that generation. And go into all the world and make disciples mm-hmm. has, has been one of those verses. And it's a deeply beautiful biblical verse. I'm not saying take it away. But we now read those that verse with a whole context and worldview of what it looks like to go into the world. Even the words go into the world just sounds so kind of conquering mm. and so kind of triumphalistic to this generation. 
And that, that's not to say those words are wrong, but because of our worldview and the lens through which we read Scripture, and we always read Scripture through a lens, that verse just takes on way, way too many other connotations. And so I, I would say let's not lead with perhaps those types of passages. Let's lead with the call to love our neighbors, the call to, you know, say blessed are the poor. And um, for me, you know, I my calling is to be in solidarity with those in the, on the margins and, and not to live my life um, ignoring them, but somehow being with them. And to me, that's a beautiful thing. And it doesn't necessarily look like all those other loaded kind of baggagey kind of mission stuff that I just don't think is helpful anymore. What's the negative? What's like, what if someone said, well, it's just a term like, okay, let's not be yeah. colonial. Let's not do, but is there something in the term itself and maybe the history of usage that does kind of conjure up kind of a, again, I, I hate using the phrase, but like a white savior or Western savior or like, top down, you know, we're going to help these, these people need our help, our intelligence, our teaching, our whatever, you know. Um, you know, all of, all of that thinking is rooted in, in colonialism, for sure, and racism. You know, I mean, the term itself was neutral. I mean, it was, can be traced back to the word apostle, but I, I would just suggest meanings of words change. There's certain words, even if I was to say it now, you know, it was a word that 50 years ago, you know, people might say, you know, um, certain words. But now it's just like, no, nah, the meanings change. Let's just move on. That words. And I just, I'm just like, you know, the word missionary, it's kind of teetering, even within churches, let alone in the, in the wider world. Um, I'll give you an example, you know, Jim Elliott. Killed by a spear on a beach in Ecuador, 1956. He's kind of hailed as a hero and a martyr for the faith around the world. He's in Life magazine. 60 years later, John Allen Chow is killed in a very, very similar way uh, by a spear on the Andaman Islands off India by the people he's trying to reach with the gospel. And um, the New York Times kind of quotes the response from all around the world. And, and I don't say this to be mean or controversial, but I'm just quoting what the New York Times said. They called him a fool and a flag bearer for colonialism. Mm. And, and so we just, you know, if we are unable to accept that times have changed, then we ourselves are the fools. You know, it, it's time to accept that we need new wineskins. I'm not at all saying we should not be loving our neighbors around the world or being in solidarity with them. I'm just saying there's yeah. some labels that are unhelpful. What, what What's the alternative word? Like when people ask you, what do you do? And you don't say missionary or missions. What do you, what do you say? I mean, I, I think it's helpful to recognize that there's not one word because they're not all doing the same thing. I personally kind of identify myself as a social entrepreneur. I'm, I'm interested in new initiatives that will benefit those on the margins but that doesn't resonate with everybody everyone's doing different things so let's maybe just accept that there's lots of ways of being a christian in the world or what about okay so if a church has has a missions department and say say you took say you were say you came in to or no let's say you took over the department like you got hired on okay you're the head of the missions department would you would you change that terminology and what would you change it to you know, I think I'd probably be wanting to 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 talk with the church about what their vision is and, and what their gifting is and how they're already involved locally um, in ways that might also flow into some global involvement. So maybe you're working with like, you know, a church that we partner with works with 
refugees in Afghanistan, um, from Afghanistan in Vancouver, Canada. And so, um, to, you know, working with those refugees there in Vancouver, um, a connection with Afghanistan, what kind of connections are there, what can grow out of this organically and relationally. And so maybe their team will not be called the missions committee, but will be called the refugee support team. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't we don't need to all have one model, but mm-hmm. let's start with the fact that we should all be engaged somehow in the world. I'm curious. I mean, this is kind of, well, it's very related, uh, short-term oh, missions. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I think it was like 50, yeah, almost 15 years ago. I was a part of this kind of committee at a fairly large church in uh, Southern California to kind of revamp their whole like um, short-term missions program. And I was already kind of just getting hunches about, like yeah. I talked to career missionaries and almost everyone would be like, I'd pretty jaded maybe or mixed feelings about short-term missions and they'd tell me stories i'm like oh my gosh are we like what are we what are we doing you know then so i then i did a bunch of research from like sociologists and stuff and just found a lot of like um again very well intended i mean it's when helping her right so it's well-intended hearts and people wanting to go and help people but a lot of a lot really i mean i won't lie a lot of kind of just negative uh effects on the local community you know the the classic example is you know going into a poor area and like building you know building homes or something it's like gosh what's what's wrong with that you know well when you're a local builder <laughs> and all yeah. these westerners fly in with all these power tools that you can never afford throw up five houses you're like the locals like oh thank you for coming they're you know the honor shame they're going to be nice and everything and hospitable but then they're like well that's a a year's worth of work taken out of my, you know, like I could have done that. Or we think like, well, they don't know how to build buildings. We need to go in and do it for them. And they're just, I don't know. Like I started to see like, out of all these, like, again, well-intended, but just for these problems, you know? Um, so anyway, we ended up re- we ended up rewording it. Like instead of a uh, short-term missions, cause it seemed to carry that kind of, kind of that, just that colonial kind of spirit. I think we call it like a cross cultural ministry experience or something like that. Like, don't yeah. think you're going to go in in two weeks and, do about yeah. like you're coming alongside primarily the indigenous leaders and then if there are some missionary <laughs> missionaries there i don't know what other term to use um you know come alongside the, the ministry that they are actually doing and making sure you're helping them not actually hindering their work anyway so that's that's kind of was kind of a revolutionary shift in my mind like 15 years ago but um yeah i would love to hear your i mean what are your thoughts on Short-term missions. Yeah, to me, it's that's an even more stark example of of a label that is really problematic. Um, To to even label it missions, Mm. just problematic, just ridiculous. Um, And so, if we can just get rid of the label, we're going to get rid. We're going to really move a long way towards a better practice. And I'm actually one who's who believes that we urgently do need to get out of our home patch. Um, and the reason for that is we urgently need to gain perspective. Um, you know, after 23 years of living outside my country, um, and just, you know, I hadn't even been in the Western world in five years until yeah, last year. Huh. And I was just like, we urgently need some perspective. Like, we urgently need it. Um, you know, like I mentioned, the idea of of talking about tyranny, when we have no idea what tyranny looks like. Um or poverty, or all of those things. Uh, and so we urgently do need, you know, someone said, what our eye has not seen, our heart cannot grieve. Mm-hmm. And so I believe that we have to 
um, connect. We need to be in solidarity. We need to be in relationship with our brothers and sisters around the world. I believe that. The term short-term missions is terrible. Um, we, we should call it something that reflects what it needs to be, like a vision trip or a learning exchange. Um, those, those are two terms. And so we come not with the posture of we're going to all have our T-shirts on, so we're, we're the ones who are serving. Um, actually, very often we will be served. And that sits very, very uncomfortably with us. You know, this very poor lady who's used up some of her money to go and buy us a Coke um, to bless us. Do we even have the capacity to accept her blessing and give her the dignity mm. of being someone who serves? Um, and so the opportunities for learning are massive. And I think that's why we've seen such poor results from short-term missions is because it's not framed as learning, except to learn to suck it up and serve well, rather than learn what God says to us about poverty and justice and how we should live our lives as a result of the fact that there are people who are hungry in this world. Learn what the Gospels say about wealth and money and all of that. Learn, learn, learn. And this is going to be an amazing opportunity to learn. And I'm all for that. I love that. I facilitate that. So kind of, so a cross-cultural kind of exposure, learning experience yeah. where you're getting to know what God's doing in another part of the country or another part of the world. You're coming up. It, it, okay. Is there, is there healthy? But not in hurtful ways, of course. Not because right, right. you're there <laughs> painting an orphanage or something. Not, still not allowed to do that crap. <laughs> it's so funny the the disconnect between when I talk to career again I'll just use the term and you know career missionaries right between that and and the short term it's like a huge there's there's this huge like unspoken or sometimes it's spoken but tension almost like I don't know like we need to get a big conference together and just work all this out because yeah I don't know if yeah I, we, I just we wish need uh, models of how how people can engage. But again, a lot of missionaries themselves have not really deeply um, thought through systemic injustice, um, poverty, the theology of suffering, theology of poverty, and all of that. And so they're often they often are not able to guide a group through that kind of learning experience that might actually um, have some kind of lifestyle impact when those people go back. Is there some kind of service? that um short-term trips can do that would would are actually good i mean is it just coming with our notebooks and learning or is there something that they can actually do that would be healthy for the local ministry in the long run and the local community and it, it's little things but I, I think that's like the five percent okay and, and the learning is the 95 percent um I, I don't think that that serving is or, or trying to make any kind of change, it should be central to those kind of trips. Okay. Um, I, I don't believe that. You know, there might be ways to help out, but that's periphery. It's peripheral to what you're there for. Um, yeah, if you can be helpful a little bit without undermining what local people are doing. You know, like alongsiders, we have alongsiders all over Cambodia. We don't allow any short-term teams into their communities. We would never do that. We would never take them into a slum or a community because that puts a very unhelpful spotlight on the people being visited. Um, it creates unhelpful expectations by neighbours. So even if you come into the slum and start cleaning up the trash, that's also unhelpful. <laughs> like, don't do that because you're just creating a spectacle. 
I would I would suggest there are ways to do it. One of the ways that we do it is we have camps, and so they're in a neutral space. Um, in fact, we 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 built the first campground in Cambodia, and um, so the alongside us bring their little brothers and sisters to the camp. The alongside us run the camp. Um, they lead every part of it. They even pay for themselves to go to the camp, even though it's supplemented. And the outside group comes, they can build relationships and they can speak English and maybe lead a couple of games. We might let them teach a song or something if they're lucky. But it's about learning and relationships. It's not about it's not about okay. kind of ministry. Which I do like when when churches have like the church I go to, they have a um like a partner church in in Mexico um that they have relationship, a deep relationship with. Like they'll They'll fly up here and hang out. We'll fly down there and hang out. So there's, and I'm, you know, and, and so, you know, the, we take, there's short-term trips to go down and everything. And, um, but it, I, I do like the fact that the foundation is this relationship with another partner in the gospel in a different country, you know, like that is the primary and people go down sometimes now and we'll just hang out just like, I'm just going to be there for a month and just hang out with them and, and eat meals with them and, you know, um, continue that relationship. So the reality is, though, it's just way less risky for us as outsiders. We've got nothing to lose yeah. and everything to gain. But the, the local people have a lot to lose when um, there's unhelpful expectations around money and all of that kind of thing that, are, that they're left to, to deal with once you leave. So we need to we need to be savvy about it. I mean, be clever and creative about finding neutral spaces to connect. And I, I think there's ways to do it. Yeah. Well, Craig, man, this has been super fun and interesting getting to know you. And uh, man, um, you're <laughs> the stuff you're doing there, man. That's not not a lot of Christians are, um, I think, uh, eager to do what you do. So thank you for. I don't know. You, you don't want a pat on the back, but I mean, it's um, it's ad, it's admirable and it's encouraging and challenging to to know um, the kind of ministry you're doing. And uh, yeah, thank you for also like writing books and talking about it and getting the word out and stuff. So um, yeah, thanks, man. Appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Right All right. Well, thanks for being on Theology Raw, man. We'll we'll be in touch. Yeah. All right. We'll catch you later. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.